Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being more deeply in touch with our own humanity. This is episode 146, and it's about how the Tudors saw English history and their place in English history. I've thought a lot about how the Tudors discussed and learned about their own history, and I did do another episode earlier on the Tudor tutors, so the people who were the teachers and developed textbooks and things like that during this period, so I'll link to that in the show notes. Um, But I was really kind of thinking about how they saw the Anglo-Saxon period, for example, and I wanted to dig into that in an episode. So you can get show notes and resources at englandcast.com slash history. So I have three main admin points, and I'll go through them really quickly. So the first is that right now until June 28th, I believe, is the Indiegogo for my 2021 Tutor Planner. So if you don't yet know what the Tutor Planner is, it's a weekly, monthly diary slash calendar slash planner that I've been doing for this will be the fifth year. And it's filled with Tudor facts this week in Tudor history, all that kind of stuff wrapped up in a beautiful cover that looks like an old manuscript. But it also has all of the planner stuff that uh, my fellow planner nerds will appreciate, like habit trackers and goal sheets and check-ins and all that kind of stuff. The Indiegogo is something I do every year to fund the printing of it because it's something that I just publish myself. I do it all independently. And if you support the Indiegogo, there's like some super cool perks. So not only do you get the planner at the cheapest price that it's going to be all year, but you also get some cool thank you perks and thank you gifts and things like that. I will link to it in the show notes, or you can go to Indiegogo.com. The planner was actually completely funded in three days, which is so cool, you guys. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful. But I'm still running it, obviously. The more people we get, the, the better. 
So um, it's a great chance to get the planner at a low price and get some cool thank you gifts. So indiegogo.com and search for the Tudor Planner, or you can just get the link off of my website at englandcast.com slash history will be the show notes for this episode. Okay, that's the first admin. Second admin is the Intelligent Speech Conference is coming up. So for those of you who don't know what the Intelligent Speech Conference is, it is a day-long conference. This year, it's virtual, of course, because everything's virtual right now. And it brings together a lot of amazing podcasts, mostly history, but there's a lot of current events and all kinds of other stuff. So there's some amazing podcasters. I'm just so thrilled to be included in, in this list of podcasters. So Intelligent Speech Conference. And again, I'll link to that in the show notes too, but that's coming up on June the 27th. So if you want to sit in, I'm actually on a panel of modern history. They wanted to put me in medieval. And I was like, you guys, I'm not medieval. Like the medievalists, I can just hear the medievalists out there screaming, she doesn't belong in medieval. So I said, I got it. I got, I can't do, I can't do medieval. (laughs) So I have placed myself in the modern roundtable. And then I'm also doing a talk. The theme is on hidden histories. And I'm doing a talk on the hidden Catholics during the Elizabethan period, which if you've been around this podcast for a long time, you will know that's something that's particularly dear to my heart and interesting to me, even though I am an Episcopalian. So I don't have anything particularly at stake in it spiritually. I just find it really interesting. I thought it fit really well with the hidden histories because, you know, hidden priest holes and everything like that. So intelligencespeechconference.com or again, englandcast.com slash history for the show notes on that. And the third bit of admin is it's been a long time since I've done a patron shout out. And I've gotten a couple of new patrons, you guys. I'm so incredibly grateful. Um, Leah, especially. Leah, Leah, however you say it, I'm probably butchering it. Anyway, I'm so very, very grateful. Thank you so much. And I will be in touch with your little goodies and thank you goodies and things like that too. Um, Let me just give a quick thank you shout out to all of the patrons who support this show. That's Al, Alexandra, Andrea, Babette, Selene, Char, Christine, Cynthia, Delia, Donna, Helen, Ian, Jennifer, another Jennifer, Jennifer H and Jennifer M, Jill, Jim, Joanne. We've also got John and another John, John C and John M. And we've got Jurgen, that's my dad. Justine, Candice, Kara, Catherine, Kathy, another Kathy, Kathy with an I, Kathy with a Y. And we've got Katie, another Katie, Katie B, Katie F, Kelly, Kendra. Also, Kimberly is a new patron. And then there's another wonderful, generous Kimberly. So, Kimberly A and Kimberly D, thank you so very much. Leah, Melissa, Michael, Paul, Rachel, Ryan, Shandor, Sarah, Sharon, Susan, Tracy, Rebecca from Tudor's Dynasty, which is another great show to listen to and a Facebook page to follow, Twyla, Vicky, Vivianne, and Wendy. You guys have my very deep appreciation, and you guys are awesome. I'm so incredibly grateful. So if you would like to join this illustrious group of very discerning, very intelligent people who help keep independent podcasts like me going, you can go to patreon.com slash Englandcast, where you can sign up for as little as a dollar a show and 
get my undying gratitude and a shout out like this as well. A lot of admin there, huh? There's a lot going on in this world. All right. I actually have stuff to say in this podcast. It's not all just (laughs) admin. Okay. History, history, history. So the 16th century saw a really big increase in people studying the past. And we get this term, antiquaries. That was what they were called, the antiquaries. And they, they got their interest. It stemmed from the Reformation. So the very most famous of these is John Leland. And he's known as the father of English local history. He was a poet and he first served under Cardinal Woolsey and Thomas Cromwell was a patron. He actually composed verses for pageants for the coronation of Anne Boleyn. But while he's very interesting for that, the reason I am interested in him is what happened to him starting around 1533 when his life took a different turn. So he was given a commission by Henry VIII to tour through the country taking inventories of libraries and monasteries, well, the libraries in monasteries. So he was looking at the libraries through the lens of a reformer. He was looking for ancient justifications of the new break with Rome. So of course, this is right when Henry's breaking up with Rome. The very early Anglican church is is kind of being formed here. And we're trying to think about what do we believe and what is what does our faith actually believe and where does the monarch fall in relation to Rome and all of that kind of stuff, right? And so they go to these monasteries, to these libraries that have these very ancient manuscripts, and they want to see what did people before our modern period, what did the ancient Britons, for example, before the Norman Conquest, before the Fourth Lateran Council, what did these people think about Christianity? Because there is this belief that really what Henry was doing in getting rid of Rome was going back to the ancient rites that the British had before the Norman Conquest. Okay, so that's the, the setting the stage for why they were doing this. But this act itself led to the discovery of these ancient texts, as well as having to translate Old English. And it, it directly led to plays by Shakespeare later and the the uncovering of these very ancient British stories and this kind of sense of British history for the first time. So the work of Leland and the group of reformers that he was working with pioneered, like I said, the study of Old English, and they became the first Anglo-Saxonists of the modern era. And the way they discussed and wrote Anglo-Saxon history became actually the framework for our understanding of it for centuries and much of their beliefs are still what we what we think of when we think of Anglo-Saxon history today. So the dissolution of the monasteries and the study of the libraries and books at the monasteries also coincided like so much of this time period coincided neatly with the printing press allowing many of the books that were hundreds of years old to be printed and reproduced for people to translate into modern English and to read themselves. So we've got people like John Leland traveling around, getting these ancient texts, and then translating them into modern English. They had to first learn it themselves, and I'll talk about that in a minute. And then we've got the printing press being able to actually print this stuff out for wider dissemination. So more and more people were learning about history, and history was becoming something that people were taking an interest in for the first time. During the reign of Henry VIII, about 250 medieval manuscripts were preserved from university and monastic libraries during his reign. 
So we often, when we think about the disillusion and then the Protestant Reformation and the period of the reign of Edward VI, we often, and I say we meaning me, <laughs> think about the destruction that was done during that time. The, as Eamon Duffy calls it, the stripping of the altars and the destruction of the choir books and you know all of the kind of graven images and things like that. But we do have to give some thanks where thanks are due for the preservation of these monastic texts. Texts, say that 10 times fast. That happened during the reign of Henry VIII. And then what becomes very interesting is when Leland is on his tour, he also notes monuments and castles. He wrote out all the different things that he found and discovered about local English history in his notebooks, which later became known as his itinerary. And then that became sources for later antiquaries from the next generation, like John Bale and William Camden. And there's actually still a, um, a trail, the Leland Trail, which is 28 miles, where you can go through and follow the itinerary that he took during one of his itineraries, during one of his travels. But let's back up just a little bit and talk about the founding stories of England. So Leland was among the chroniclers who believed that England was founded by Brutus of Troy. Brutus of Troy was a legendary Trojan exile. And some medieval chroniclers thought that he was responsible for founding Britain. Brutus, Britain, kind of is the same. Leland recognized that there were some issues with the story, some problems, but he basically thought that the general gist of the story was true. Chroniclers maintained that Brutus was the first king of Britain. He named the island, its people, and language after himself. And he also built the city that would eventually become London. Now, Brutus was apparently the great-great-grandson of the Greek goddess Aphrodite. His great-grandfather was the Trojan hero Aeneas, who was the son of Aphrodite. We get back into Roman and Greek mythology here, but Aeneas supposedly escaped the destruction of Troy, carrying his father in his arms, and then he became the leader of a group of Trojan exiles who escaped to settle in Italy. And then from him comes the line of Romulus and Remus, and many of Rome's rulers later claimed a descent from him and the royal house of Troy. And then through that line, we get Brutus a couple generations later. The story of Brutus of Troy first appears in the work Historia Britonum, or the History of Britons, from around 829. This is often attributed to the medieval chronicler Nennius. It's also, Brutus of Troy is also mentioned later in more detail in Historia Regum Britanni, or History of the Kings of Britain. Now that was written by a much more famous chronicler, Geoffrey of Monmouth, around 1136. There's some big differences between the two stories, though, and Geoffrey's work actually provides a lot more information and detail. So Geoffrey dates the arrival of Brutus on the island, which was then called Albion, to around 1115 BC. And today, we really don't credit his work or this history as English history at all. But from its creation up until around the 17th century, this was the creation story of England. This is how English people, British people, learned the history of their island. It was common knowledge that they came from Brutus of Troy. And so for, you know, about 800 years in there, this was the story of the founding of the English. This is the story that Henry VIII would have told himself that he was living up to as a monarch. This, this great line of Roman Trojan 
leaders, right? One person who did challenge some of the myths of Britain, including the myth of King Arthur, which was sacrosanct, was Polydor Virgil. Now, Polydor Virgil was Italian, but he's remembered for being one of the earliest writers of English history. He came to England from Italy in 1502 and spent most of his life in England until he returned to Italy for the final time in 1553. So he spent over 50 years in England writing its history. And he is, of course, where we get a lot of the stories, the Wars of the Roses and the Princes in the Tower comes from Polydor Virgil. Around 1506, he began his famous work, Anglica Historia. And the earliest manuscript of the text is from around 1512 to 13. And the first printed version appeared around 1534. Now, his research convinced him that Geoffrey of Monmouth was not an accurate historian and that Monmouth's work was actually a work of fiction. Now, Virgil took aim at, like I said, two kind of very sacrosanct people um, or personalities in this story, which was Brutus and King Arthur. Now, Brutus, he just dismissed altogether. He said, no, that's not even true at all. And King Arthur, he thought might have existed, but it, it wasn't this great Arthurian legend. It was just a knight kind of thing. So the whole account of Arthur's reign took up only one very short paragraph in Virgil's massive book. He accepted that Arthur ruled after Uther, Uther Pendragon, I suppose, and maybe would have reunited Britain for a time if he would have lived longer. And he said, these are the established facts. Anything beyond that is speculation. And he also said, he also called out the idea that Arthur would have been buried at Glastonbury Abbey because the abbey itself, the monastery itself, was not actually even founded until after Arthur supposedly died. The whole story of how Arthur's remains, Arthur and Guinevere's remains, supposedly came to be at Glastonbury in the first place is a really interesting tale that deserves its own episode. However, it's medieval, um, so I won't go into it. The short story is that the monks of Glastonbury Abbey had some other relics that had attracted a lot of tourists. And, you know, there was a whole network of tourist destinations based on relics and shrines. And in 1184, a fire destroyed a lot of their buildings and a lot of their relics and things like that. And then magically, as if by nowhere, a miracle happened. A miracle, I say. And the body of King Arthur and his famous Queen Guinevere suddenly just appeared 16 feet deep in the ground. The timing was amazing. Anyway, that would have been about 500, 400 years before what we're talking about now. So I won't dwell on that, but it is an interesting story. Where were we? Virgil said that it was indefensible to state that Arthur was buried at Glastonbury Abbey because, again, Glastonbury Abbey was not even founded until after Arthur was dead. So John Leland responded right away to this with every kind of xenophobic insult he could come up with. He basically said Virgil's ignorant. Um, how could he know anything about English history because he's Italian? Blah, 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 blah. And of course, when Virgil points out that Glastonbury was founded after Arthur was buried there, Leland responds sarcastically, Polydor, according to his equity and judgment, and so far as his authority serves him, declares that there was no monastery in Glastonbury in Arthur's time, so exquisite a judge is he of antiquity, and especially concerning Britain. So he specifically says, 
you know, how can Polydor Virgil, an Italian, have any kind of any kind of authority when it comes to British places and British history? So another late antiquary who helped discover and preserve Anglo-Saxon Britain was Matthew Parker. Now we've heard Matthew Parker's name before a couple of times. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury under Elizabeth. We've talked about him a couple of times on the show. First, he had been Anne Boleyn's chaplain. And we also then talked about how he worked with Thomas Tallis to write the music for his Psalter, his English Psalter, setting the English Psalms to music for the masses to listen to and to understand. And that was the Tallis tunes for the Parker Psalter. So we've talked about him a couple of times. But he was also an antiquary, and he was a collector of early printed books. Beginning around the 1560s, he actually made a concerted effort. He wanted to find out what he could about the monastic manuscripts that were being kept in the cathedral libraries and in private collections. On the 7th of July in 1568, there's a Privy Council letter calling attention to the Queen's care and zeal for the conservation of such ancient records and monuments which heretofore were preserved and recorded in diverse abbeys. So again, what kind of led him and the other members of the Queen's circle to take an interest in these manuscripts is that they wanted to document what was the early English church like? What was the early English church like before the Norman Conquest and the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215? That Fourth Lateran Council imposed a bunch of different reforms on churches all over Europe. And what they really were hoping for that was that as they discovered this writing and these church documents from before 1215, they would get a much clearer understanding of how the church worked, and they would see that what they were doing was actually just restoring England to its ancient heritage and its ancient rights, as opposed to actually reforming and doing something brand new. Tudor scholars found support for their positions from these writings. Before the Fourth Lateran Council, priests had been allowed to marry. Before the Norman Conquest, services had been in English as well as Latin, and there was evidence that Anglo-Saxon scholars had tried to translate the scriptures into Old English. So something else about this is the thing that makes this all really interesting is that up until now, no one spoke Old English. So how could they translate the documents? Well, it wasn't that much different than, than breaking a cipher, and so the scholars could use the Latin that was in both places because they still knew Latin, and so they could use the medieval Latin to come up with the different root words and kind of build a key out of that. And then there were several scholars who worked solely on translating these early histories and documents from the Old English into Elizabethan English. And by doing this, they discovered entirely new ways to see their country and their history. Old English Anglo-Saxon laws were discovered, and for the first time also the Venerable Bede's histories. A scholar called Lawrence Noel translated Orosius's 5th century Historia that documents reports from a Norwegian sea captain about the geography of Scandinavia. And then that translation, which was already over a thousand years old, would later be used in Richard Hakolite's early travel writings towards the end of the 16th century. So, you know, it's interesting because when we talk about the Renaissance, we think about the Italian Renaissance and the discovery of all this ancient Greek and, and the manuscripts, and particularly after the fall of Constantinople, all of the different documents that were coming out that were Greek and Roman. But England had its own sort of document renaissance going on during this period as well. And I think it's really interesting to think that for the first time during the 16th century, 
they got to see what did people a thousand years ago say about our history and what was our church like during that time and and to translate these documents and to give them this whole new scope of how to look at their country and look at their history. And that led, like I said, to a huge increase in interest in history. Noel, the guy who translated that Historia document, the 5th century one, he then produced a dictionary of Old English. And by the 1560s and 70s, printers were actually printing out copies of Old English books, like I said. Now, to show you just how popular history was as a subject, there was a paper on the London book trade circa 1600, and the author Mark Bland writes, many of the largest books were works of history. The largest book published at 363 sheets was Philemon Holland's translation of Livy, but several other folios appeared, including translations of Constagio's A History of the Uniting of the Kingdom of Portugal to the Crown of Castile, for May's The History of the Troubles of Hungary, and The Geographical History of Africa by Leo Africanus. Three history books were also printed in Cordo. That was Thomas Dinette's A Continuation of the History of France, The Mahout Matani or Turkish History, translated by Robert Carr, and John Stowe's Annals. As well as these, the third volume of Hakalite's Voyages appeared. I actually did do an episode on Richard Hakalite as well, so I'll link to that in the show notes too. I did, it was probably about three years ago I did that one. The extensiveness of this list emphasizes the diversity and wide range of contemporary history that was available. So we have now history becoming something that, oh, and again, I just want to credit, uh, that was Mark Land from his paper, The London Book Trade, circa 1600, and I'll link to that as well. Englandcast.com slash history, loaded with lots of show notes this episode. <laughs> so it's clear that the Tudor and Elizabethans became fascinated by history. And this popularity then comes to its peak with all of Shakespeare's history plays. Shakespeare said what is past is prologue. And it's clear that the Tudors and Elizabethans were most interested in finding out their past for several reasons, most notably because they actually wanted to find the evidence that their view of religion was the most pure one, the one that the British had before the Norman Conquest. Additionally, they kept their creation myths and shut down scholars that disagreed, taking great pride and patriotism in their history. So that's it for this week. Like I said, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of juicy notes, so I will put them in englandcast.com slash history. And do let me know what you thought about this episode. You can get in touch with me through the listener support line at 8016-TESCO or through Twitter at TESCO or facebook.com slash englandcast. Remember to get your tutor planner with the Indiegogo if that type of thing appeals to you. And check out the Intelligent Speech Conference, again, if that type of thing appeals to you. And I will be back in another couple of weeks. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> Bye-bye. Blow, northern wind, a scent for baby sweating. Blow, northern wind, blow, blow, blow. 15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cher